Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Austin. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about our sponsor, Bugfender. Bugfender is a tool for mobile developers that solves a pretty typical problem of having error reports that you're not able to reproduce. Ideally, you'd be able to check the bug with the user that has the issue, but of course they're going to be thousands of miles away. So what do you do? You use Bugfender. Bugfender is an SDK that you drop in your app and then you set it up with a single line of code. Then it sends all the application logs to the Bugfender servers so that you can check on any device remotely right from their website. It's super useful for early dev, beta testing, and even production apps. Bugfender unlocks the possibility of detecting errors earlier, assisting users that need support, and ultimately achieving excellent customer satisfaction. And we actually have a promo code for you. If you go to bugfender.com slash build phase, you can sign up for free. And then if you decide to upgrade to the paid tier, you'll end up getting a 20% discount just for being a listener. So that URL again is bugfender.com slash build phase. And thanks a lot to Bugfender for sponsoring today's episode. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Austin. And this is Built Phase. I don't know a lot about why Skype does the things that Skype does. Microsoft. Oh, they're owned by Microsoft now, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Like, there's that weird home screen. I just made a joke on Twitter about this, but not even a joke, just like generally being baffled on Twitter. There's that, like, like go to Skype and click on the home thing in the left what do you see there i see an advertisement that's like weirdly shoved off to the left it's like not centered or anything yep and it's it's not even like a legitimate advertisement it's right. like if, if you bought milk in the last 15 years <laughs> right. you may be entitled to payment from a class action settlement <laughs> and there's right. a cow with a dollar sign on it <laughs> and the website is fantastic it's boughtmilk.com Botmilk.com. Like got milk. So good. I'm very cu- <laughs> I don't mean to follow this rabbit hole down, but <laughs> I'm very curious about what that class action lawsuit is. You know what I mean? I mean, do you wanna do you wanna look? <laughs> sure. This Click is, on that this ad. This is better than me ranting. Sure. We'll get Let's there. Let's learn. We'll get there. Let's learn. Oh, I'm not click. I'm not clicking the ad. I'm navigating uh, to uh, the URL. Oh, oh. oh. I'm right, not. I'm are, not letting Skype profit off of this. <laughs> that would be disingenuous. Mm-hmm. What we're doing here is journalism. Right. Pure and simple. I don't think that anything I've ever done has classified as journalism. Well, this website just doesn't load. So, can we bring a class action lawsuit against false advertisement? for a website that doesn't exist we could but where are we going to advertise (laughs) skype (laughs) definitely on skype (laughs) do you think that that's a conversation that comes up in like some ad companies strategy meeting they're like okay we got google adwords we got facebook ads we cannot figure out how to crack into the skype ad market it must just be terrible and somebody at skype or microsoft just doesn't care right and so these like shady ads come through and they're like yep looks good let's just slap <laughs> that right on the home page right the otherwise empty home page but again it's like they expect you to be doing status updates like what i don't understand remember when skype just made video calls yep 
Yeah, there's I, a lot here that isn't that. I don't. I don't know. Do you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Homer designed a car? Yes, that's Skype. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I need a status text field here, here, and here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Or it's like that episode of Thirty Rock where they try designing a microwave and accidentally design a car. Yep, the Pontiac the Aztec. Pon- Pontiac Aztec. <laughs> So basically, Skype is on their way to the Pontiac Aztec, is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what's up? How are things? On fire. <laughs> Sweet. So our, our iOS 10 release came out this week. And you got featured. We got featured, and we have our point release ready that fixes some crashes. Sure. Including some incredibly boneheaded ones on my part uh-huh. that caused the app to not work for anyone on iOS 8. So if you uh-huh. happen to be one of those users listening to this, you can just blame me. That's fine. <laughs> I'll take the hit. <laughs> and our update, keep in mind, featured app was rejected for using private API, quote unquote. I'm furiously doing the quote gesture with my fingers. It's the angriest. The methods are add I've keywords seen. and update layout. Those are apparently mm-hmm. so very specific to what Apple's doing. Right. That we can't possibly also be using those. Right. One of those is even generated by core data. Right. Their recommendation is to just change our method names. Just change them. Sure. Just use something else. Of course, we could collide again, and we can't possibly know until we submit for review and then find out that it's on this magic list of method names that we are not allowed to use. Right. How do you think that list... Like, where is that list coming from? Do you have any idea? It doesn't make sense, because it seems like if they were dumping every symbol they have in their private frameworks and even right. private symbols in the public frameworks, we would have way more collisions. Like It'd you're be just going to run in all the time. So yeah. like, I don't understand where this list is coming from. I mean, the app just got approved like last week and right. now it's rejected. And I've seen this come up on Twitter a couple of times. So it seems like this, whatever tool they use to scan, you know, your binary is now throwing all kinds of false positives. Yeah. This is the second time that I've seen someone talking about this and even specifically talking about core data, like pre-generated core data stuff, tripping this flag. Like in the past week, this guy, a guy, Curtis Herbert, who runs Coco Love, he has an app called Slopes for like tracking snowboarding and skiing and stuff. And his app got rejected for the exact same thing like last week or earlier this week. Like not maybe not for the same keywords, but because some generated core data thing triggered a private API flag. So it seems like it's something new, right? Mm-hmm. Like the code that got flagged, it wasn't added in this release, right? No, this code has been in there forever, forever. And so why is it just now getting flagged? Clearly something changed on Apple's side. Yep, couldn't tell you. I hope that enough noise is made about this that like it's crazy for them to ask you to change things. Or have you all reached out to uh, Apple Dev Support? Yeah, we responded to the rejection. We opened an appeal, and we also contacted our contact at Apple. Mm-hmm. But this is annoying, right? Yes, and and like we are fortunate enough to have somebody at Apple that like we can communicate. Most right. app developers don't. They're going to hit this and they're just going to have to change their method names, which is insane. Right. Don't tell me how to write my code. Right. Don't tell me that common English terms are like right. out of bounds. 
Right. Those words that you used are not crazy. You update know what I mean? layout. Update layout. There's no underscores in there. There's no, you know what I mean? It's like, if you want to make sure that it's not conflicting and it's that generic, it's on Apple's side. They have to do something to make sure that that, that doesn't conflict. You know what I mean? Like, if I was in that position, I wouldn't say like, oh, I'm going to reserve the words update layout now and forever. That's crazy. It's just so generic. I would sit there and go, you know, there's a high probability of this conflicting with someone else's, you know, someone's code. I'm going to go out of my way to maybe do like underscore update layout, right? Or double underscore update layout, like whatever. Just make it unique. Yep. The message we got even says, if you have code that has these method names, we suggest changing it. So it's not just like some automated thing that's like tripped on a false positive. It's like, okay, we're going to send this out. They've apparently encountered this before. People come back and say, I'm not using private API. And they go, oh, well, just change it. No. No. But, that's, but, I but don't again, want to. It's, it seems like they widened some net or something. Or, or maybe that list accidentally got some, a bunch of symbols in it. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like, like, okay, let's be optimistic here, right? And say that if they dumped, like you said, if they actually dumped every single method that was in every single private framework and used that as like a blacklist for what we can't use in our code, it would be basically impossible to write code, right? Yeah. So what if that blacklist was messed up somehow? You know what I mean? Like what seems like happened is that that blacklist got symbols added to it that weren't supposed to be added to it. Or they had been dumping some subset of symbols. That's a weird thing to say out loud. They dumped a subset of symbols and now they are, for some reason, a different subset of symbols got accidentally added to the blacklist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then unfortunately, because of the way I was going to say because of the way Apple is structured. And then I realized I have no idea how Apple is structured. So because, uh, but then unfortunately because of the way Apple's structured inside my head, app review becomes unable to really do anything about this. Like my perception is that the app review team are basically just like, here are the rules, enforce the rules. You have no power to go in either direction on this stuff. Right. So when those things get flagged by, the app review team, even though they are false positives, they can't then do anything. They don't have any agency. They don't have any ability to override that rule. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Right? Yeah, they just get provided with some tool. I mean, mm-hmm. hell, that's probably even automated before it gets to the reviewer. Right. Is it like if it's using private API, kick it. The question is, if that is automated, why can't they at least do that when you like validate your binary with iTunes Connect? Right. I don't know. Because all that stuff's already done on the server, right? My initial thought was, well, they don't want that validation process living on people's computers, but it already isn't, right? It's already, when you do validate, it's already kicking your binary up and validating it on the server, right? And then just returning a yes or a no. More than just a yes or a no, but it's returning like, yes, this passed, or no, it didn't pass, didn't pass and here are the issues, right? And now I'm not sure if validate might just do some like local scan, but at the very least, once it gets submitted to iTunes connect, it does have the ability to scan through 
the built product you submit and pick up things like this. For instance, right. on iOS 10, if you don't have a specific info plist key about using the photo library, it won't even accept your submission. So right. it can do these kinds of checks. Right. It's annoying that you have to wait to, for it to go into review only to get mm-hmm. kicked back for something that is not an issue. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to complain about app review for an hour because none of this is surprising to anyone. It's just no, but it is it is something that needs to be talked about, right? I think it's too easy to say like, oh, this is frustrating. Uh, this is just how it is on you know Apple, right? And from the outside, especially, it's easy to just go like, huh, walled garden crap, right? But I think that it's weird enough and bad enough and obviously a mistake enough, right? How many versions have you guys shipped to this store? Like oh, who knows, man. right? Hundreds, right? Yeah. I'd assume hundreds. And let's say a hundred, a hundred times that code has been in there and never been an issue. And all of a sudden it's an issue now. Really? At the same time that all of a sudden it's an issue for Curtis and his app. That seems suspicious to me. Like, again, it seems like something that got messed up. And so it seems like something that where noise needs to be made about it so that other people don't go through this Yeah, for their apps. I wish there was a more concrete way of communicating these things to Apple that isn't yeah. moaning on Twitter and reaching critical mass right. to get them to notice. Or filing a radar. Because you could file a radar, but what do you file the radar against? Exactly. And even then, everybody inside Apple says, like, no, 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 radar works. But the the truth of the matter is we don't see it on the outside, right? We don't see it. as So it doesn't matter if it works internally or not. The external perception is that it doesn't. And so the external perception is going to be, I'm not going to waste my time. So it doesn't matter if it works. Like, it really doesn't matter if internally radar is the greatest tool may ever made which is kind of how some ex apple employees make it sound but like if we external to apple if we perceive it as a black hole and if we treat it like a black hole because that's how we perceive it and we don't trust it as a system then we're not going to use it so that would be the obvious place for you to give feedback, right? Or for, you know, say the entire Venmo iOS team just files radars on this. Hey, this is crazy. I can tell you exactly how long this code has been in the project. I can tell you exactly how many releases we've done since that code was introduced and it never triggered any problems and all of a sudden it's triggering a problem, right? Filing a radar on that would be probably the way people would tell you to communicate with Apple about this. But we both know that the most likely outcome of that is that nothing happens and that it sits there or it gets closed as duplicate and you never hear about it again or nothing ever happens on it at all. Right. Yeah. So I'm guessing the appeal is probably going to be the best way since that in my mind deals directly with the app review division. For sure. And given that, you know, Venmo has some pull here and was just featured my assumption would be that y'all have a better chance of kind of making enough noise that the problem gets fixed than like if I submitted an app on my own. Totally. Yeah. We definitely do have that privilege. It's just unfortunate that 
Yeah, it sucks that there's it. that disparate, but at the same time, to a certain extent, it, it is kind of a good thing then that it happened to you, right? Because it's clearly also happening to developers without that kind of pull. Not to say that Curtis's app isn't successful. He got featured for something as well. But like, there's a difference between dealing with an individual developer and dealing with a company. And so to a certain extent, it is a good thing for the rest of us that Venmo got flagged on this because Venmo can put more weight into fixing this than like I could. Yep. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, we'll definitely have this resolved like the next time we talk. I would actually kind of expect to hear something back like tomorrow. Yeah. But like our app is crashing and we're still featured. So let us fix it. Yeah. You would think that would be a priority. Bummer. Yep. (laughs) Um, I can tell you, I can tell you what the crash is. Yeah. If you're interested in knowing that. I am. We have a local framework in the project that holds some code that needs to be shared between the iMessage extension and the Siri extension. Those are both, obviously, iOS 10 deployment target. The app itself supports back to 8.0. Also, frameworks that are shared with the extensions have to be embedded into the app because if they don't get embedded into the app, the extension won't know where to go find it. You can't embed them into extensions. When you embed a framework in the Xcode UI for the app target, it also adds it to the linked binaries and libraries phase. And basically it comes down to this framework is using UI stack view, which is mm-hmm. iOS 9 only. So at runtime, when it when it gets linked on 8.0, it hits the UI stack view symbol and everything blows up. Mm. The thing that I found odd about that is that when the framework has a higher deployment target than the target that you're linking against, why isn't there an error for that or a warning or a warning? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't done that enough to know, but it definitely seems like there should, but there's a lot of stuff like that, right? There's a lot of stuff where like, is there a compiler warning for using an ape? Like let's say your deployment target is eight. If you use a symbol that was introduced in nine, is there a warning for that? Or does it just compile? I think in Objective-C, you get a warning. In Swift, you get an error and a fix-it. Do you? That offers, that offers to wrap either the like... In a if? Yeah, the, the if Whatever available. that compiler directive yeah, is. Yeah, add available platform and version. Yeah, it'll, wrap, it'll offer to wrap like the usage of that symbol or the enclosing method or the enclosing type. Hmm. But I think in Objective-C, it's just a warning, if hmm. I recall. But in this case, it just seems more than happy to try to link whatever mm-hmm. in there. And it was just totally accidental. I meant to just embed it. It right. didn't need to be linked. It got linked automatically. Right. Because it's not used by the app. It's right. only it used by to, the extensions. Yeah. It just needs to be part of the like build process to actually get it moved into the right into the app product. Well, that sucks. Yep. <laughs> sure does. We're getting destroyed. In the reviews right now too oh really yeah that is rough yeah rough day rough week mm-hmm. sounds like mm-hmm. if it makes you feel any better i think i have walking pneumonia right now really yeah how does one get Pretty walking sure. pneumonia in summertime in texas you can get pneumonia in late summer i think that's what happens i don't know i'm not diagnosed with it or anything i haven't been to the doctor because I don't have one. WebMD. I just WebMD and my dad, who is a pediatrician. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, hey, 
Oh, and there and there there were two people in the co-working space that I work in that went to the doctor for this and had walking pneumonia. So it was kind of like a hey, this is seems like it's going around in the co-working space and then I looked up the symptoms. I was like, yeah, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> like I was at I was at the gym on Monday and I just was I was just failing miserably. Like weights that normally I am totally fine with or maybe they're heavy but like I've done before kind of whenever and they were just destroying me like I bailed on some squats that I've hit just a ton you know just constant like they're very it's a consistent weight for me and, and I had to bail on them and then the next two days I just felt super fatigued and super tired and so then I, when I looked up the things it was like cold like symptoms like yes I've had those for over a week now and then, or two weeks almost, and then just kind of general body weakness. I was like, yeah, that sounds accurate. And so then I called my dad and I was like, hey, does this sound like this? He was like, it might be. Keep an eye on that. It's like, cool. So we'll see what happens in the next week. If it gets worse, I have to go find a doctor. But so, of course, what I decided to do, since I think I have walking pneumonia, is work from home and do two podcasts today. Sure. Are you going to go see a real doctor at some point? Like modern medicine? Uh, you know, we'll see. Okay. If if I have to, like, if it gets worse over the next week or if it's not gone over the next week, I will go see a doctor. I'm hopeful that, that I won't have to. That was the advice from my doctor father, by the way. Not... <laughs> I'm not just making, I'm not just like making this up. He was like, yeah, you know, it's not great, but like a lot of walking pneumonia is basically just like a more severe cold. Like it's not pneumonia, pneumonia. It's much less than that. And like, I'm not curled up on the couch. I haven't had fevers. I'm not like, I'm able to walk around and move. I'm just, I just am pretty sure that I have this light, a light case of pneumonia. (laughs) That's fair. I mean, Hillary Clinton has pneumonia. Yeah, walking pneumonia. That's what she has. And she's a 60-year-old woman. And she's right. on the campaign trail. Yeah. So I think, I think you can do two podcasts in a day. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I am working from home because I was like, I'm probably going to just try not to be in the office if I actually have this. Be horrible. Just give everyone else in the office pneumonia. I feel so bad about that. That's the fastest way to make me go home from an office Is, setting. Anybody, even the slightest, like, yeah. like you could sneeze because of allergies. And I'm out. Going home. I'm not going to subject myself to this. Yeah, honestly, I was probably in the office too much between my vacation. But I felt weird. Like I felt weird working from home because I just got off vacation. So I was on vacation for nearly two weeks. And then I had like the sniffles. And so I was just like, I don't want to work from home after being on vacation for a week. That would be weird. I probably should have. Whatever. What else can we talk about? Other than my general health. I like these sort of interludes. I like when we can play tech talk. Just catch up. Me too. Yeah. Let's see. I'm working on killing liftoff. So that's fun. Excellent. And you've replaced it with something called kickoff? No, that's dead too. I killed that. (laughs) I already killed that. So, okay. So let's start from the beginning. Liftoff was, you started it. You have the first commit. And then kind of we ran with it it's basically a project generation tool for ios projects so you run liftoff at the command line you give it some options it generates an xcode project for you in a folder structure and yada 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 when we were building it 
we decided to make it configurable. So we started adding like kind of config files that you could override and let you like describe your folder structure that you wanted and all these kind of cool things. Turns out when you let people customize that much stuff, it makes your tool incredibly complicated <laughs> and, and insanely hard to maintain. It also makes your tool complicated and hard to maintain when you're not great at the language that you're writing those, that tool in, which was Ruby. <laughs> so two big mistakes there. So that was like two years ago, three years ago, that we finally came out with Liftoff 1.0 which is when we added the configuration ability and the ability to actually generate a project, not just edit an existing project. And since then, it's been really weird. I haven't done a good job of maintaining it. I've kind of like lost interest in it over the years. And then it's been really hard to generate more interest in it internally. And like generally speaking, people haven't been using it to start their projects, not internally anyway. We have a few external users, but internally people just haven't been using it. And so we've kind of fallen, it's kind of fallen out of favor. And since it's such a kind of like a gnarly code base and it's in weird state and it has like no tests, it was really hard to get people excited about improving it at all or working on it at all because it just had so many weird edges that you had to deal with. So because of that, it's kind of rotted a good amount. Like we just have let it stagnate and every now and then someone externally gets interested in it and opens some pull requests or opens some issues and that starts us talking about it, but it mostly starts us talking about how guilty we feel, specifically how guilty I feel for neglecting it and wondering if it would be better served by the community. So then that, that combines with this idea that I do still want something to generate projects. I do still see the value in like taking away the questions of like, how do we set up that project? How do we set up new projects? Or like, what was that bin script that we use for testing, you know, on that last project? Like those kind of things are like, what was that build phase that you used to do X, Y, or Z, you know? There is a benefit to having projects that you can generate through a template like that. But I didn't want to go down that same road of trying to build tooling to solve that problem because one of the big problems that I had with Liftoff, aside from the general complexity issues, was that if we wanted to update the template or if we wanted the template to do something else, we then had to ship an entire new version of a tool, which was like crazy, right? Yeah. So I started down this idea of like, what if we just had repos that just had projects in them and those projects had strings in them that we could like G sub. And then it, so it was like super simple. And then we could just write a simple shell script that like pulls down the specified repo and then like asks you for some variables and then replaces those variables in place, you know, super simple. And so I wrote both those things. I wrote and I called it kickoff after you told me a bunch of names that I could use. And I picked kickoff out of your list. So kickoff was a super simple shell script. And then I had a corresponding iOS repo that was set up to work with it. My idea was that we could write different kickoff template repos so that you could do like kickoff iOS, kickoff Android, kickoff Haskell, kickoff Rails, right? And we could access all of ThoughtBot's templates through one 
interface instead of having to go through, oh, for iOS, I need liftoff, and for Rails, I need suspenders, and for, you know, Haskell, I need stack, right? Like, that kind of stuff. And so I wrote kickoff and then like as just like a really quick and dirty proof of concept thing. And then I posted about it internally and some people were like, hey, there, you know, there might be a existing solution. Like if we really don't want to maintain code here, there might be an existing solution we could use. And one of those solutions was this thing called cookie cutter, which is a Python tool. So it's written in Python, and it does exactly what I wanted to do. So Cookie Cutter, like it pulls down a repo and it looks for a like a JSON config file in the root of the repo, and then it uses the variables defined in there to create a prompt, and then replaces all the stuff in the template repo with those strings. And so that's perfect. So I just converted our repo, our iOS repo, over to that. So that's now at Thoughtbot slash iOS dash template. And then Amanda Hill created the Android template. So now we could do basically use cookie cutter for either iOS and Android. And then I'm trying to work on getting it implemented for other things too. We could actually do the Django too. Is the D silent in like, like in the movie? Do you know? Django. Django, not Django. Django. No, just Django. Okay. Django. So you could do Django dash template exists under the thoughtbot org too. So you could do that. So like there's a number of platforms now that all support cookie cutter through thoughtbot, you know, so now we can have like a common interface, but it was kind of fun putting that together, especially since I didn't have to worry about configuration at all. And so now that that's there, I want to, and I'm probably going to this week, maybe tomorrow, spin off liftoff into its own org and put out a blog post saying what we're doing and why. And then saying like, if you're interested in helping push liftoff forward, that's great. Let me know. And I'll add you as a collaborator to the repo or to the org. So kind of trying to spin liftoff under community control as quickly as possible and moving forward with our own template that doesn't use liftoff. That's where we're at. Cool. Makes sense. I'm looking at your template right now. When does this post-gen project script get run that's in the hooks directory? So it runs and it generates the entire folder structure and then it runs post-gen project. And there's also a pre-gen project hook you could have that runs before it does anything. But it run, It also runs after you input data. So, like, you know, it prompts you for a project name and company name and bundle identifier. You could write a pre-project gen script that validates that those are valid values. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then fails if they aren't. And then that would stop the project generation process right there. Or you could write it as a post-gen, but it would generate the whole project first, so that wouldn't make sense. This is cool. Yeah. So the only thing that sucks is that because you have to use that... I can't even remember if it's handlebars or mustache or whatever, but because you have to use the like that replacement syntax where you're doing like double braces, double curly braces, and then a variable name, because of that, because the project itself <laughs> is nested in that subfolder, it sucks working in this thing in the terminal because I constantly have to like use quotes to get 
to that point because it thinks that 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 curly brace is a like a replacement syntax, you know. Yeah. In shell. <laughs> and then I have I just set up there's a pull request open right now that'll probably be closed by the time this airs. I it better be where I set up CI. So what I was able to do with CI is kind of cool. I wrote like a little CI a script that tests the template, right? So the template has a test script in it and a circle.yaml, but the template repo itself also has a circle.yaml and a test script. And what the test script does is it generates a new project using that template and then tries to run that generated project's tests, right? (laughs) Which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of a cool idea, right? Like it creates a new project using the template and then runs the test for that generated project so that we can always make sure that when you change the template, it will build, it will run, the tests will pass cleanly, like on a clean generation. Yeah, this is really cool. I, we have a lot of frameworks, and I could use a better way of generating them. Yes. Because a lot of the stuff is the same. I really need to move them over to using XC configs and then share mm. these configs somewhere so yeah. that you never have to tweak the project file on yeah. any of these. The next template I wanted to create is almost certainly an iOS framework template. Right, because we create a lot of those, mm-hmm. and it would be nice to just say what is the name of this thing, and have it generate a project for you that is already set up properly to have a project that will work with Swift Package Manager, Cocoa Pods, and Carthage that has a project that has iOS, Mac, WatchOS, TVOS targets. And then tests for those frameworks that support testing. Did you see that post from Max Howell about how to set up your project so that it's like one target? Yeah, I've done experiments with that because there's an XC configs project on GitHub that specifically does that, that specifically tries to, or not specifically tries to, it does have the right configs to generate those kind of projects. And actually when you do... Swift Package Manager generate Xcode proj, it generates a target that could be compiled for any platform. So I've done experiments with that. It, it's It's been weird, and it causes weird issues for very specific use cases. Hmm. It's mostly fine, though, but I don't know. I think it's a little like it it confuses me for whatever reason much more than there's like more involved to it than I would like, even though I hate maintaining four different targets. It's at least explicit about it. I don't know. I'm torn on it, I guess, is the the gist of my answer. Yeah, it doesn't really matter either way to me. It's not like I mean, we have an iOS app. We don't have a watch app. We don't have a TV app. So Right. A couple of our frameworks have support for those things because it was easy to just add targets, but we don't use them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm way more interested in getting configs in flat files instead of just in the project file. Mm-hmm. And with the new like optional include, I feel like I could pull in like any pods configs and then if mm-hmm. they happen to not be there, it's fine. If they are there, great. Mm-hmm. I wish we could do more with XC configs. I wish we could take more of the project file and move it out into a separate file. Yep. So if it changes in a in like a pull request, you notice right away. You could have like a you could have danger like making sure that people aren't making changes to certain files. Right. It's just 
such a cluster right now. Yep, I agree. I had a, <laughs> I showed you already, but I had in that template, like I had three different pull requests where I added three different build phases, run script build phases. And then I just blindly, because I'm an idiot, I just blindly like merged them in <laughs> to master and then tried running the tests and the project wouldn't parse because it just mer- it put all three of those next to each other. <laughs> so, so it just said like, it had like three openings, you know what I mean? Where it was like validate Carthage dependencies and I don't know, increment build number and warn for to do's. Right. But it had all three of those, the opening statements for those build phases right next to each other in the project file. And then it had three names <laughs> for those three things. And then it had three shell scripts for each of those three things. And I had to go in and fix that manually which was which is one of the scarier things that I've ever done. It's just like I don't I'm pretty sure this I can just copy and paste these things around and sep- split this one into three, but I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. You can. I've had to do a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was telling you yesterday that we were working on like the Siri and the iMessage extensions in separate branches concurrently and when it came time to merge them, mm-hmm. whatever it is about adding targets to the project file it gets messy really, really quick mm-hmm. to the point where I just gave up. And when it came time to merge my Siri extension in, I just made a new branch, added a new extension, and just brought all the source files over and just changed all the configuration. <laughs> right, right. Because it was actually faster than sitting there and trying to right. do a merge on our 22,000 line project file. Right. There have been a number of times in the past where I've ended up after a rebase or whatever, ended up with a merge conflict somewhere in the project and I end up just checking out the project from master and re-adding my files that I know I added and then just going from there just again because it's just like this isn't worth dealing with I should just bail now and save myself some time yeah I mean if you're mid rebase you can just choose to take hours Mm -hmm. like reference hours and then grab that one file and and then especially if you have if you have git re 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 on it'll just reuse that resolution for every other conflict. Right. And then at least the project file is like not broken. You just have to add all your references back. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. If, if this could just be based off of like like a disk, like a structure on disk, it'd yeah. be so much better than trying to like list all these files and references in your project file and with these identifiers that are just randomly assigned. Mhm. So, yes, I agree. My problem is I do understand why it works the way it does, right? I understand, even though it annoys the hell out of me, I understand why there's this weird virtual file system and why it doesn't work off disk. It's because they want you to be able to do what we do like in Argo and Runes and all of our frameworks, right? We have one file that we want linked into four different targets, without duplicating that one file four times, you know, but that solution to me also seems backwards, right? It seems like the problem is that I need those four different frameworks that have identical contents. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that having a better way to do that would solve that problem. And then we could go back to like, no, no, let's just work off disc because that's going to be make much more sense. 
I guess if you had like shared code between a Mac and iOS app, you'd still want that. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's the difference right now in Xcode between yellow folders and blue folders. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you right. if you have like a blue folder in Xcode, everything in there is just going to get put into your bundle when you compile, whether you want it to or not. But at least with with like the folder references and being like a member of a target, you have a lot of control over making sure that your entire directory structure doesn't just like end up in your app. I right. get that. But I, I do agree that this like multiple targets p- for platform seems really unnecessary like it seems like we could do it with one target and you could call them slices or expand configurations you know and say that you know this one target works on these four platforms if you need to customize anything based on these platforms you do it here but for the most part these files are just part of this target yeah i can't help but think that this specific issue of having four targets per framework right that like argo and runes and all these things have four different targets inside them is the reason that isn't solved is because Apple still doesn't care about this use case, right? They don't expect people to be shipping code this way. I don't think, right? Cause they still don't expect you to be using frameworks built outside of Xcode. You know what I mean? Like Carthage pre-built yep. binaries. That's still not a use case that they are expecting people to use. Yeah. I would love to know if, you know, somebody working on UIKit, presumably they work on UIKit and Xcode. Mm-hmm. Some merge conflicts have to just be heinous, right? Right. And they don't want to improve it? Is it like not enough of a problem? I don't know. I mean, we're working on a modest sized app. And right. when we had to add two extension or two targets, it was a shit show. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I have no idea. On the Git side of it, I wonder if there are other like diff and merge strategies that work better with the Xcode project format? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we still use that merge union thing that you set up forever ago. How's that working out for you? Good, except for that it leads to issues like this. This merge union thing is what caused that merge conflict in the first place, which wasn't a merge conflict. It merged correctly based on what I was telling it to do, right? Where it saw basically three line changes that all were basically similar. You had these with two like kind of blocks in between. It's easier if you see the diff, I'll link this pull request in the, in the show notes, but like where it put those build phases, the way it kind of tried to reconstruct the project file makes total sense in a merge union situation, but didn't make sense in real life. But this happens so infrequently that it's it hasn't been an issue. For the most part, this merge union thing, we don't treat it as binary anymore, but the merge union thing has been working fine for us in like day-to-day life. Yeah, the problem always seems to come down to these like structures that are defined in the project file that you know when you add a second one, it just so happens that the lines at the top and the bottom usually have unique information and there's a huge chunk in the middle that's like identical. You know, so if you have two framework targets, there's a bunch of crap in there that like kind of just says that this target's a framework, but like the name at the top might be different at the bottom. It might be like a different reference or something. And so then when Git tries to merge those things, it sees the part in the middle that's the same and doesn't recognize that like the change on the top and the bottom are actually like one atomic change that it should try to resolve. 
and it's taking them piece by piece. Right. So I was wondering if like the patient strategy or some other strategy would maybe do that better at the expense of like taking longer. Yeah, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting. Yeah, it seems like such a simple thing, mm-hmm. right? Like you change the Git config in your local project. Mm-hmm. And it like vastly improves that. I should dig into this more. Yeah, and then you should blog about what you find so that I can use it. Sure, sure. <laughs> cool. Do you want to wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. All right. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 107. As always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or reach out on Twitter at buildphase, and we appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Cool. All right, man. See you. Good talking to you. Later. Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks.